let's turn together to Ephesians 4. We took our time over the past couple of weeks to recognize Easter season. We took a couple of weeks ago to talk about the crucifixion and the implications of that for us as a church. And then, of course, last week on Easter Resurrection Sunday to tease out the implications of the resurrection for us as a church. But now we find ourselves coming back to the book of Ephesians, which we are studying verse by verse And so it's good to be back in Ephesians. I want to say to you that the way you listen to Ephesians is a little bit different than the way that you listen to a book like Luke, where we've spent the past couple of weeks. Luke is narrative, it's in story format. Ephesians is a letter and written by Paul, who had very tight logic and tended to say a lot of things in very wordy ways. We will not get down into the weeds too much in the wordiness of Paul, but we do want to take time to slow down a little bit. Last week we covered all of Luke 24, but today we're going to slow down a little bit, as we typically do in the letters of the New Testament, to cover these five verses and discern what the Holy Spirit wants to teach us today. This is a critical, a truly critical passage in the New Testament, which outlines for us the continuing ministry of Jesus, and I want to come back to that in just a second, the continuing ministry of Jesus and the intentions that he has for us as a church to minister as he ministers through us. So let me come back to that statement I just made, that Jesus continues to minister. Jesus is not on vacation. Jesus is not on sabbatical. Jesus continues to actively minister to and through his church with the goal that he will receive the glory that he is due as the creator and savior of the world and that we might mature and love one another in joy. Jesus continues to minister in this church And through this church, that we might grow in maturity and love and thereby experience full joy. And therefore, this passage is critically important. When it's all said and done, and we have time to just stop for a minute, pause, and the idols of our hearts are set aside momentarily, our, our affections are, are set aside for those things temporarily, and, and somebody were to ask us in a quiet moment, what do you want? I think, because I know you, that you would say, I want to worship God. Now, you might say it a little differently than that. You might say, I want to glorify God. I want to honor Christ. I want to love God. I think that characterizes this church. Furthermore, I think you would say, though you might hesitate to say this a little bit because you're not sure that this goes along with the first desire to worship God, that you want to be happy. Those of you who've been at this for a while, this Christianity thing, following Jesus, you are hopefully learning that that those two things are not different from one another. 
In other words, as we worship God, we will be the happiest. That's how God designed his image bearers. He designed them for the purpose of bringing him glory. And when they do that, when they worship him, when they love him, they will be the happiest, the most full of joy. And therefore, what we find in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 12 through 16, is how those two things come together. How we might worship God and experience fullness of joy. Paul has written Ephesians that we might, as a local church, an embodiment of the larger universal church, he has written this letter that we as a local church, just like Ephesus was back in the first century, that we might know all that Christ has done for us and how we can worship him. Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 tell us what Christ has done for us. And though we took our time through those first three chapters, we didn't even come close to wringing out that sponge. It is full of sweet truth. We are now taking our time through chapters 4 through 6 to see how we respond to those truths. Jesus loves us first, and we respond in love back to him in practical spheres of worship. We see the purpose of the church in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22. God, he, put all things under his, Jesus' feet, and gave Jesus him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And then again we saw at the end of chapter 2, beginning in verse 19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What is Jesus doing through his church? He's showing the world how great he is. Jesus is filling the world in Columbus and the United Arab Emirates in Iraq and all over the place. He's filling those places with churches made up of believers, his body, that his fullness might be seen and treasured. And truly, this church, this church family, this church body is a part of that temple. Jesus is making himself known in and through you. Jesus is continually at work. Now, before we go on and we take our time to read verses 12 through 16, I want to say this. You can be at peace. The way I have set this up may already have led you to anxiety. Anxiety in the sense that that this whole thing depends on us. That if, if unbelievers in Kurdistan, in Clintonville, in Pataskala, and Dubai, and Abu Dhabi, and Canada, and Mexico, and Vietnam, and China, and all over the world, if they're going to come to Jesus and love him, that we better get to work 
we probably should quit our jobs, empty the bank accounts, go somewhere where there's no electricity, probably get malaria and dengue fever and die, and then maybe, maybe Jesus will be worshipped. Now, I'm not saying Jesus isn't calling some of you to that, but the truth of the matter is, he's in charge of it, and you can be at peace. And as you respond in obedience, participation, he's still the one who's working. He's still the one who gets the credit, and that takes a whole lot of pressure off of us. Now, I want to be careful to say right alongside that, that this does not take responsibility off of our shoulders. We must be ministers of the gospel. We do represent Jesus, the living Lord, to everyone who's watching. But yet, he is the one who gets this done through us. And so, as you listen today, I want you to listen with ears that are both characterized by, by rest. This whole enterprise does not depend upon you singularly. But at the same time, what the Spirit might be pointing out in your heart, areas where you should be growing, repenting, and believing. So let's read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 12 through 16, as we come to this end of the section of Jesus, who is the head of the church. We'll start in verse 11 to give ourselves a bit of context. And he, this is Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. For building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And that is a mouthful, but may God bless to us the reading of his word. Now let's take some time to think carefully about what Paul is saying here. As we just read in verse 11, Jesus has ascended to heaven after having descended to earth, having been crucified and resurrected, and now he is in heaven continuing his mission. Theological scholars call this the session of Jesus. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, but he's, as I've already said, not just on vacation taking it easy. Jesus is pleading the merits of his righteousness to the Father, ministering to his church, and then through his church to the world that others might come to embrace his good news as well, that they might be saved from sin and worship their creator. So he gave gifts to the church, and the gifts in verse 11 are people. People have been given to the church, and now today we find in verse 12, the question is answered, why have they been given? For what purpose? Well, Paul answers this, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ for this reason, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What's the purpose of the gifts? These people who are the gifts? To lead the body of Christ, the church, into maturity. The purpose of the gifts is teaching, leadership ministry, 
with the goal of maturity. So, verses 12 through 13, I think, present to us this basic truth. Christ has gifted our church. We're going to make this personal today. Christ has gifted our church with people that will lead others toward growth in Christ. These are the gifts of verse 11, the people. Largely, according to Paul in Ephesians 4, verse 11, he has given this church pastors and teachers, probably the same set of men. What are they to do? To equip the saints, beginning of verse 12. Most modern English versions see the beginning of verse 12 as one clause, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. If any of you are perhaps carrying the much maligned King James Version, which, by the way, is a really wonderful version that God used to transform the church in the English-speaking world, it breaks that clause up a little bit. Here's basically how it reads. Jesus gave gifts to the church, pastors, teachers, to equip the saints, comma, to do the work of ministry, comma, to build up the body of Christ. Almost all of your modern translations have changed that opening clause and taking a comma out by saying that the teachers, the gifts, the people, have been given to the church to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. Scholars differ on how to interpret this. I don't know that it ultimately really matters because as we will find at the end of our time today in verses 15 through 16, everyone is to be ministering. So even here in the near context, if verse 12 is to be carried out mostly by the pastor's teachers, nobody gets off the hook because in verses 15 and 16, everybody is to be ministering. If the ESV and other translations are correct, verse 12 would indicate that the pastor's teachers are equipping you, the church at large, to do the work of ministry. I don't think it really matters because in these five verses, the work gets done because all are to be active. So I've taken a more general approach to these opening verses of our section today by saying that Christ has gifted our church with people that will lead others toward growth in Christ. That encapsulates the leaders, the pastors, teachers, the elders, as well as the rest of the church, especially those who will do word ministry, those who will teach. We will see in just a moment as we get into verse 14 that word ministry is probably what is in view in verses 12 through 13. Because bad doctrine will disrupt our faith and ruin us in verse 14. What is the antidote to that? We'll talk about that in a few minutes. It's good teaching. So assuming that these pastors, teachers, end of verse 11, are equipping the saints, equipping them for what should be the question? To do the work of ministry. Probably, most importantly, to help them know the word and what will be the result. End of verse 12 the body of Christ will be built up. So let me summarize it this way. Jesus has given people to this church to teach it, the scriptures, so that they will grow. That's the basic thought of verses 12 through 13. We grow in all kinds of ways. We grow by experience. We grow by by going through things in life that we, we have to figure our way through. But it's different for Christians because we don't just go through stuff. We go through stuff with 
objective truth in mind. This means that when the world seems to be falling apart and all of our dreams are coming untrue, that we can look to the Word of God which promises us that God gives good gifts and even in our suffering is at work. The Scriptures teach us that God does all things for His glory and the Scriptures teach us that God does all things for our good. And so, even in our experiences, our experiences must be governed by the Word of God. Therefore, truly, as Christians, the people of God, our growth mostly comes through the Bible. Now, God brings that into our experience as we go through life. He forces us in the crucible of life to have our faith tested, to have it affirmed and nurtured and changed and grown. But He does that through the Bible. In other words, we're not just guessing at things. We're not just making up our own truth. We're not just narrating our own story. God narrates our story. God teaches us how to think. God teaches us how to look at the world. God grows our faith. God transforms our minds. God shapes our hearts. And how does he do that? Not through clever humanism. God does that through the preaching of the Bible. That happens on Sundays. It happens in your small groups. It happens in your one-on-one or one-on-two discipleship. It should be happening in your private time or with your family. The truth of the matter is, if we're being honest, that we can hear a stirring sermon or have a really meaningful experience in our small group or kneel before God and pray and read our Bibles before work in the morning and be moved and stirred. And yet sometimes, moments later, we have forgotten. Our minds are often full of holes. And our hearts are like sieves where the truth leaks out. How do we keep ourselves from losing the truth? How do we keep ourselves from living on the fumes of past learning? By coming back to it again and again and again. Pleading with God to keep us from being bored. Pleading with God to keep us from being intrigued by pure novelty. But instead hearing the truth of the scriptures. And notice the standard of our growth in verse 13. What is the standard of our growth? It's the unity of the faith. What faith? The gospel. We are to be unified around the faith of Christianity, which is what? The gospel of Jesus. And the end of verse 13, of the knowledge of the Son of God. That's what we're learning all the time. That should make up most of the fabric of what we are discerning from the Bible because that is the story of the Bible. The Bible in its 66 parts, its 66 books, is not just a bunch of disjointed stories. It's one grand narrative about how God created a world that he knew would fall into sin, but he made provision to rescue some of those sinners in his Son. And one day, he will restore them to himself in full worship and restoration. That's the story of the Bible. That means that wherever we are, and it's easy to see it in Ephesians, 
we should be learning about the faith, the gospel, and we should be learning about the person of Jesus. What are the pastors, teachers, and other gifted, word-based ministers to do? In other words, as the pastors, teachers, like we installed Josh today as an elder, Josh has exemplary character, and Josh has giftedness, aptitude to teach the word. And the goal is that all six of us, all six of our elders, will continue to help you as dads, moms, kids' church teachers, small group leaders, disciplers, to know the word and be able to teach it to those under your charge. And therefore, really, who's exempt from that? If you have a kid, you have to teach the word. Specifically, about the gospel, about the person of Jesus. If you teach kids' church or small group or discipleship or other spheres that you can think of, you have responsibility. So who's exempt from that? Now, the pastor's teachers are the ones who keep guard on the doctrine. They are the ones who perhaps are charged most especially in quantity of teaching. But everybody must know the word. They must be able to embrace and articulate the truths of the gospel. And we must be unified around those things. And we must know Jesus. And, and what will happen when we know the gospel and know Jesus and teach others to do the same? They'll grow into mature manhood. This is not exempting women, by the way. This is chosen, this word manhood is chosen because all of us are in Adam or in Christ. If you are in Adam, you are doomed. If you are in Christ, you have the hope of eternal life and righteousness. So we're talking about covenant leaders. So what happens whenever you're under the covenant person of Jesus, whenever you're connected to him in covenant? You'll grow into mature manhood. And what's the measure? The fullness of Christ. The primary purpose of Jesus coming to the world was to be our substitute. But also to demonstrate to us what a recreated world looks like. That is to say, because the first covenant head, Adam, failed, the world fell into some kind of decreation. Think about this. Genesis chapters 1 and 2, God creates all things, and he calls them what? Good. What happens in Genesis chapter 3? Humanity sins and God curses the earth. It's a kind of decreation. But when Jesus came to the earth and lived a perfect life and was resurrected, what does this exemplify? Recreation. And we await the day when he will come and bring perfect recreation, perfect restoration to the world. But until then... We look to him as our perfect standard, the perfect man, our new covenant head. So we believe his gospel, unity of the faith, we do that together. And we learn about him, what he has done for us, and we grow up into him. How does that happen apart from the Bible? It doesn't happen by osmosis. It doesn't happen simply because you have a good religious pedigree. You must know the word. That is why we take our time to spend a whole Sunday on five verses or sometimes even less so, so that you'll know. And that's why we talk about the same things a lot here, hopefully in new and creative ways. But we keep teaching you about the gospel. We keep teaching you about Jesus. And as intriguing as it is to be, to be caught up in peripheral notions, 
those peripheral things will, will lead you to other affections. So, so there are a lot of doctrines out there that we teach over time, but we keep coming back to these central doctrines of the gospel and, and of Jesus, and thereby we stay focused on what is true, and we grow up into him. Christ has gifted our church with people that will lead others toward growth in Christ. Let's look back at 1 Timothy 4. I read from this passage a bit ago and during Josh's elder installation, but I want to read a couple of verses from this passage, and then we'll turn to 2 Timothy and see a couple more. Paul says to Timothy, pastor of the church in Ephesus, ironically, Verse 11, command and teach these things. Teach people the Bible. Until I come, verse 13, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Look at verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself. And on the teaching, persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. What's at stake through the teaching of the Bible? particularly as it relates to the gospel and the person of Jesus, what's at stake? Life. That's what's at stake. And that's pretty important. We will live or die in keeping with whether or not we are unified around the gospel and the person of Jesus. So therefore, the elders, pastors, teachers, are to teach you these things that you might know them, and then you take them and teach others, which is what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2. You then, Paul says to Timothy, this last letter of Paul that we have, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. What do you want for your kids? I assume you want them to be successful, have enough money, Marry well, but what do you want from them? If we had another quiet moment where we could distill it all down and remove all your distractions and ask you, what do you want for your daughter? What do you want for your son? I know most of you would say, I want them to love Jesus. And I want them to teach their children to love Jesus. Well, that's our responsibility then, right? The elders don't come into your home and teach your kids. You do. The elders can't come to all of your discipleship meetings and and take care of all of your relationships. And that's your responsibility. So, so we are doing what we think is our best to, to teach and lead you. So you can do that with other people. And, and by God's grace that will continue to multiply. So that others may grow up in the faith. It's generational reproduction. And when you see that going on, it is beautiful. So, Christ has gifted our church with people that will lead others toward growth in Christ. Verse 14 teaches us that mature faith centered on Jesus and his good news will protect us from false evil teaching. Verse 14, back in Ephesians 4, Paul says that we should grow up into Christ so that, verse 14, we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. What happens when we grow in Christ, this perfect man, our, our perfect example, when, we, when we're unified around the gospel and we know Jesus, what happens? Mature faith is developed. 
and it is to be centered on Jesus, because again, we saw that this is about the faith of the gospel and the person of Jesus. When it's centered on Jesus, when our mature faith is centered on Jesus, we will be protected from false evil teaching. Verse 14 could be translated instead of children, toddlers. We will no longer be toddlers. I have a niece who is about 18 months named Molly. And Molly has learned to walk recently, but Molly is still unstable. We were with Paige and Corey for Easter last Sunday, and I have forgotten how difficult it is to have a toddler. So they have kind of an uneven backyard with all this nice landscaping and stonework, but it's like a total disaster for a toddler. And so at all moments that she is in the backyard, her parents have to be within like six inches of her so that she doesn't tumble down and split her head open. She's unstable. That's what toddlers are. They're, they're sort of top-heavy. Sadly, that's the way far too many Christians are. They are, they are easily pushed over. They are easily toppled. We know from Paul's experience that he was shipwrecked. This is very common in the ancient world that you would take voyages, sometimes even at night when you could not see the storm coming. Jesus experienced this with his own disciples, purposefully putting them in a couple of situations where they had to, to see horrible storms and be scared to death. A lot of the ships of that day were, were very uh, little boats. They, they weren't really ships at all. And a little 30 to 50 foot boat, if a strong storm were to be whipped up, could be easily broken and smashed and driven to the bottom of the sea. This was common in Paul's experience. We live in a culture that is intrigued by peripheral doctrine, which often then turns into bad doctrine, which then inevitably turns into false doctrine. As we see at the end of verse 14, those who teach such things do it purposefully seeking to draw attention to themselves and their ideas. We see this sadly all the time. We must not be naive to think that it doesn't happen. There's a guy that used to pastor here in Columbus. If I said his name, a few of you would know who he is. He led a relatively successful, at least from the outside, church down near campus. He was a pretty ardent follower of Jesus, good teacher of the word. Over the past few years, through um, a lot of bad influences, he has left his wife because he believes that you should have equal relationships with all women, not just your wife. And now he is teaching a universalist gospel that all people are already saved and that what teachers of the Bible must do is help them to see that they are already redeemed and to find the good within themselves. Therefore, the cross doesn't matter. The resurrection doesn't matter. The Trinity doesn't matter. The Bible is full of holes and lies, but it does inspire us toward growth and experiencing the good that we see inside of ourselves. Where does such teaching lead? I have noticed as of late on social media that people that I know well are now being influenced by this man and perhaps following after his pernicious evil lies. What's at stake according to 1 Timothy 4 verse 16? Life. Life is at stake. 
such teaching sounds good. It's appealing to humanity to hear that we are already good. It's appealing to us to believe that that we did not need God to come down here and die for us. It's scandalous to to the human mind to believe that, that God would need to die for us because we're unrighteous and deserve hell. That's scandalous. That's offensive. So when we hear a message that tells us that we're not that bad, maybe we're even good, that Jesus was, was an inspiring teacher and great moral teacher and a good example to us, that sounds better. That's why most of the mainline denominations in the Western world have completely abandoned the gospel altogether. The churches that Calvin and Luther and Knox started so many hundreds of years ago, it, you would be hard-pressed to find in most of those churches today, the gospel being preached or the person of Jesus, his work and his person embraced. It's not necessary. Because if we're not bad after all, what is Jesus to us but just a good teacher and a good example? He was kind after all. He was some kind of original hippie, loving and teaching and leading people to enlightenment. It is no wonder that at the point of justification by faith in the person of Jesus as the Son of God, also Son of Man, perfect sacrifice, resurrected Lord. It's it's no wonder that those doctrines are always under attack. If you examine church history over the past 2,000 years, the doctrine of the gospel, the unity of the faith, we already saw that, right? Verse 13. In the person of Jesus, verse 13, it's no wonder that, that those two doctrines are always under attack. What does it matter necessarily how long the tribulation will last? I I may have just really made a couple of you mad. Uh, What does it matter if there's this literal thing called a thousand-year millennium? I think it does matter. The scriptures have things to say about the end times. But we're not going to live or die if there's a literal thousand years or not. As a little peripheral theological joke, some people now call themselves pan-millennialists. When it's all said and done, it'll all pan out. That, That may be the case, I don't know. But it's so interesting that in our churches, especially over the past 150 years or so in America, We have focused so much on peripheral doctrines that we have forgotten the central ones. There's a lot of churches that if you go in today, you'll you'll see lots of charts behind the preacher, and he'll spend like 12 weeks talking about trumpets and bold judgments. But if you ask the average congregant under his care, what's the gospel? Who is Jesus and what did he do? They will often be hard-pressed to tell you because they've been so focused on peripheral things that they've just assumed the gospel. And, and when one generation assumes the gospel, the next generation forgets the gospel, and the next generation after that denies it altogether. And church history proves this. Do not be naive, my beloved. How can you be protected, verse 14, from being pushed around by the inevitable winds of culture, bad doctrine, embracing this idea that humans are basically good and we don't need God and we don't need Jesus? How do you push back against such things? 
You know the faith, verse 13. You know Jesus, verse 13. It, it's, it's like being inoculated against disease. This is why most of us, whenever we have children, we take them to our pediatrician and they get shots. Shot after shot after shot after shot. And now I am finding with my newer children, there's even more shots than there used to be. And then they get booster shots to make sure those shots keep working. What's the purpose of that? Chicken pox are bad. Measles are bad. Hepatitis A and B are bad. They can kill you. What happens when we get these inoculations? What happens when we get these shots? We're, we're protected from disease. That's what the Bible does. The Bible protects you from the disease of bad doctrine. So make sure that as you're listening to preaching, as you're studying on your own and teaching those under your care, that, that primarily the focus of your teaching is on the good news, the faith, and on Jesus, and thereby you will inoculate yourself and those under your care, those God has put you in charge of to protect you and them from bad teaching. We won't take time to turn here for sake of time, but in Acts chapter 20, we've already seen that Paul warned the Ephesian elders, the ones who would lead this church, that fierce wolves would come in among them, seeking to devour the flock. Let us not be naive to think that such a thing could not happen here and to those we love. Lastly, in verses 15 through 16, such mature faith centered on Jesus and his good news, fully embraced, nurtured by all, will lead our church body toward ever-increasing maturity, permeated with love. Verse 15, rather than being pushed over like a top-heavy toddler with the winds of bad doctrine, rather, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, comes back to doctrine, permeated with love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I will say to you, because Paul mentions it in verse 15 and verse 16, that bare bones teaching can be very heady, very dry, it can be used like a club, and it can become a religion unto itself. Here's what I mean. Good teaching is not the goal. Worship of God is the goal. Loving God and loving others, that is the goal. Teaching is not the goal. Therefore, it's possible to have a church which has wonderful doctrine, airtight, systematic theology, but has zero love and is not beautiful or attractive at all. That is not what we are aiming for here. We are aiming for teaching that leads us to maturity in Christ, worship of God, and mutual love. Such faith, such mature faith, centered on Jesus and his good news, embraced and nurtured by every one of us, will lead our church body toward ever-increasing maturity, permeated with love. Who gets off the hook in verses 15 and 16? In other words, who should be participating in the ministry of this church? Who? All of us. All of us have been equipped with gifts to do this very thing. You might be a hand, or an elbow, or a pancreas, or a big toe, or, or whatever else. But you have a role to play. 
So I ask you, do you know it? Do you know what your role is? Do you know what you're good at? Romans chapter 12, you can jot this down. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Those are great passages which outline giftings that Christ has given to the church, to you, to bless other people. Your gift has not been given to you to draw attention to yourself. Your gift has been given to you to bless other people. So that, Ephesians chapter 4, 4 verse 16, when, when every part is working properly with the gifting it's been given, the body grows in love. So, do you know what you're good at, what Christ has gifted you to do? If you don't know, let us help you. Come talk to somebody you trust, maybe an elder, maybe another mature believer, and let them walk alongside you and, and discern what that gifting might be. Some of you might have one. Some of you might have a dozen. Regardless of how much and what they are, you are to be using them. And then even if you don't know, you do have a responsibility to engage. But what about those of you who do know? You know what you're good at. You know how Christ has gifted you. Are you using it faithfully? Everything that we do here as a church should be driven toward the growth of disciples. That's, that's why we're here. Everything the elders talk about around our round table is, is driven through that lens. Will this promote the growth of this body? Will it promote mutual love in this body? If you don't know what your gifting is, bring somebody alongside you to help you figure it out. If you, if you do know, and you're exercising it faithfully, bless you. Thank God. Keep it up. Desire more gifts. Desire greater implementation of your gifts. But perhaps if you're not using your gift to bless others and, and seek the mutual encouragement and growth of this body in love, there may be some time for repenting and, and believing once again today. How do we respond to this as we quit? First, full maturity is Christ's intention for our church, and we must all regularly consider our affections and trajectory. If verses 12 through 16 teach us anything, it's that Christ has an intention for this church. He's ministering to us that he might minister through us. And all of us have a role to play. Full maturity is his goal for us, progressively over time, and all of us must consider what we desire, our affections, the things we treasure, and then how we're walking. Nobody's exempt from this self-examination. So I encourage you to do that today. Are you using your God-given giftedness? Jesus is still ministering in and through you for the good of others. How are you doing? If you're not doing well, repent, enjoy, because he will forgive and he will help you. Secondly, we must be on guard against the powerful effects of the false gospels of our culture. There will always be competing voices for your attention. Things drawing your hearts away from the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Be on guard. They are inevitable, but they are out there. They are lies of Satan. They come with a hiss. Be careful. Be on guard. Know the gospel. Know Jesus. And lastly, we all have a role to play in nurturing the growth and love of our body. All of us do. So, again, examining ourselves, how are you living to nurture those around you? And how are you promoting a 
permeating love in this place. I want to say to you as I quit that that there's so much good here. We we are on a trajectory of growth and love. And in behalf of the elders, I say to you, we're proud of you. We're thankful for you. There's, There's so much to be thankful for. But there's still so far to go, is there not? In the next generation and, and newer disciples, we, we all have a role to play. So, so will you repent and will you believe and will you exercise the gifts that Jesus has given you and is exercising through you for the good of others and loving them and blessing them? I hope you will. May God's Spirit teach us and may He change us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, now take your truth by the power of your Spirit. Convince our minds May our hearts embrace it and may you transform this church generation after generation. That we might love you, we might love each other, and that others might be brought into this assembly who will do the same. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and stand.